I have a righteousness which comes from outside of me. An imputed or an alien righteousness that God grants me as a gift through faith in order to be declared right with God. And you can have that at the moment God declares you righteous. You can have an assurance of your salvation the very moment that God declares you righteous in this life. You don't have to wait till the end. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Have you stopped to consider what the Apostle Paul meant in that famous passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he spoke of the righteousness of God? Do I actually get God's righteousness when I choose to follow Jesus? That may be a deep theological thought, but Pastor Lance Quinn, in part three of The Revealed Righteousness of God, brings it into plain view. Listen carefully as we learn today what Martin Luther finally understood, a truth that effectively gave birth to the Reformation. Here's part three of The Revealed Righteousness of God. I'd like for you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I don't want us to lose the continuity from what we discovered last time from Romans 1.16. And so I press on to verse 17 of Romans chapter 1, and I think it would be well for us to read again the introduction of Paul to the epistle to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at, at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Last week we looked carefully at Romans 1.16. 
And the idea that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I noted for you that Paul exclaims that he is not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the very omnipotent power of God is revealed. It is at work to save those who believe in that same gospel. I also told you that there is a second major implication to what Paul is saying here about the good news of Christ. Namely, that it is in this power of the gospel of God that God's very righteousness is revealed. I mentioned to you last time the two outline points. One, the power of God is revealed in the gospel. And secondly, the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel. And that is this particular crucial implication to where we now turn this morning. The righteousness of God. In verses 16 and 17, Paul says that it is the power of God and the righteousness of God which is bound up in the salvation of God. And just as we have learned last time that the gospel manifests the power of God for salvation to everyone who would ever believe, so we must learn this morning what the gospel reveals about the righteousness of God. For surely, that is what Paul means when he says, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now I want to tell you immediately upon our beginning this morning that this message is very theological. And I don't apologize for that at all. I don't want to be pedantic. I don't want to obscure the passion of the gospel. But one thing I do want to communicate to you this morning as my beloved flock, that this is a theological verse, verse 17. It is very theological. There is something about righteousness that God wants to reveal. There's something about the person of God that He wants to reveal. And, as well, it is a revelation to someone. That is, those of us who have faith. For Paul goes on to say that this revelation of the righteousness of God only comes to those who have faith. Or to put it in an active sense, those who believe. The righteous who shall live their lives by faith. And while that's very intensely practical, those of us who are living the Christian life by faith, there is a great deal of theological confusion and uncertainty surrounding this verse. And a question comes to us about this verse. What exactly does Paul mean here by the term, the righteousness of God? You remember, last week I began the message by telling you that Martin Luther struggled with the precise meaning of this phrase, agonizing over the exact definition it should convey. And you remember I said to you that he continued to knock on St. Paul's door of understanding in order to rightly define for himself what this phrase means. But once he understood it, he said it opened up to him the very gates of paradise. So whatever this phrase means, the righteousness of God, it is the difference between paradise and Hades, between life 
and death, heaven and hell. And with that as a backdrop, I ask the question again, what does this phrase, the righteousness of God, really mean? Well, there is no shortage of controversy on this point. And as you can imagine in understanding this phrase, there is a great deal of trees that have been felled in an attempt to find the answer. And I have read many trees lately, trying to understand myself the precision with which Paul speaks. And among Protestants, there seems to be four interpretations to this phrase as its import for the gospel message. And I want you to write these down because I think they're very, very important. And as I said, this is very theological, but hang with me. Put on your theological thinking caps with me this morning. Don't bail out. Don't tune me out. Don't turn off. This is important. The first interpretation for many about this phrase, the righteousness of God, has to do with what we could say is an objective sense to this phrase. In other words, it's bound up, this idea of the righteousness of God, objectively in the person of God Himself. That is, His justice. That's what many believe that this phrase means. It's referring to the justice of God. The justice of God which condemns sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words... This is akin to what Martin Luther himself held as to the meaning of this phrase before his conversion. You remember where he said that he came to hate the righteousness of God because God's justice was what was condemning Luther, knowing that he couldn't do anything within his sinful self to merit being in the right with God. And so this first interpretation holds that this view believes that this righteousness of God is His justice. That's what it's all about. The objective righteousness or justice of God. It's sort of a vertical attribute of the justice of God which Paul is emphasizing here. I see God and when I see Him as righteous, I see Him as judge. I see Him as the one who is retributively giving out justice to those who are sinners condemned by the gospel. That's one view. Secondly, the second interpretation of this righteousness of God phrase has more to do with God's faithfulness than it has to do with His justice. And those who hold this view see Paul as expressing the language of covenant stipulations within the law, the law of God in the form of the Mosaic legislation. God has a law, and that law is bound up in what Moses wrote down for the people. And that law is for the Jews, and ultimately the Gentiles as well, of course, God's way of saying, this is what you must do, and by my own faithfulness to the covenant that I have set up with you, I will be true and faithful as the keeper of my side of the covenant, and I will ensure then the collective salvation of all of those at the end of the age. It's not so much talking as in the first view of the justice of God, but really talking about the faithfulness of God to keep His covenant promises to His people, and they're maintaining that obedience to the law by following the Mosaic legislation. This view would see God's power to save and His righteousness 
as virtually synonymous. God's power and His righteousness are equally being revealed in the gospel, and it is His faithfulness, this righteousness of God. Thirdly, the third interpretation of this phrase has as its focus more the idea of a horizontal aspect. The first two more of a vertical, the second two more of a horizontal. It shows God as giving the sinner a righteous status before Him. He gives sinners His own righteousness. In other words, this is more, much more of a subjective sense of the righteousness of God. It's not so much who God is in His own righteousness, but what God gives to us for our righteousness. More of a horizontal idea. This view really shows the righteousness which we receive by God's gracious gift of a right standing with Him. In other words, God declares that we are right with Him and thereby it is a righteousness which He imputes to us through Christ. It's almost as it were the idea of the righteousness from God, not simply the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness that we receive horizontally. God gives it to us and we receive it from Christ. Now, there's a fourth interpretation of the righteousness of God phrase, and it has more to do with the act of God putting sinners in the right, which is performed by God in the death of His Son. And it differs from the third interpretation because it isn't simply a declaring of the sinner as right with God, but God also revealing the fact that He is actively, by His righteousness, putting people in the right through keeping His promises to save His people. That also, of course, has a horizontal sense to it. It's putting people in the right. Not just declaring them righteous, but putting them in the right actively by giving His righteousness to His people so that they can obey the promises of God. Now, clearly, the first two interpretations de-emphasize what you may have heard in your own Bible studies is the legal or forensic ideas of this passage. What do I mean by that? Well, when God declares a sinner righteous, Reformation language, Reformation teaching for almost 500 years now has taught that what that means is that God declares the sinner righteous in the legal sense, in the forensic sense. It's the courtroom scene where God bangs the gavel down on the law books of the account of yours and my life and says, not guilty. There's a courtroom idea here. It has a legal and a forensic sense to this passage. Strangely, however, there are many, many people, many Bible teachers and scholars who are now jumping the ship of such things and saying Paul isn't really talking about that at all. He isn't talking in this passage or the other passages in Romans whatsoever where the righteousness of God phrase is also used, of any so-called courtroom scene where God's righteousness is declaring sinners to be in the right with Him. They say, you've missed it. You've totally missed it. This is not the idea of this phrase and its implications. That would be fairly consistent with some of those who hold those first two views. Not all of them, but some of them. And the latter two interpretations are the ones that do, in fact, emphasize the legal or forensic declaration of God to the sinner. 
It's not just some collective idea of God keeping His faithful side of the covenant to His people, but it's God declaring to the individual sinner that he is right with God legally, that he's been declared not guilty through Christ. Now, which interpretation is correct? Or which combination of positions is correct? This is huge. This is a huge issue interpretively for the book of Romans. Because whichever position you land on, this important point of the meaning of this specific phrase, the righteousness of God, will influence you in all of the other passages that use this phrase in Paul's epistle to the Romans. In other words, we have to understand what it is right here, right now, before we can go on to the other passages in Romans which use it. It's crucial. For instance, with the first two interpretations, you would emphasize the righteous, just, faithful character of God, and by that then the collective societal issue of how Jews and Gentiles relate to one another. Whereas in the latter two interpretations, you're going to emphasize the status of the individual sinner and who he is before God. Plus, you're going to emphasize what God's righteousness does in the gospel as he brings a person, whether he be Jew or Gentile, into a right relationship with himself. And those two are not the same. They are not the same. In some views, you have an issue that doesn't bring to bear on the individual center these issues. It's really the collective societal issue between Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. It's more of a societal idea. It's more of a community idea. It's more of a covenantal idea. And for others, they say, not so. This language is the language of declaration. It is legal. It is forensic. It is what God does to the individual sinner and, of course, collectively as a whole, but especially to the individual sinner, God says, not guilty. It has those overtones. It's the very words that are used here. Which one is it? How do we understand this most important phrase? Well, before I tell you where I've landed, let me give you a mammoth qualifier about this righteousness of God idea. However you land on this most important issue, the one thing we cannot do in interpreting this phrase is err by saying that this righteousness of God is something that the sinner already possesses in his life. Whatever this is, Whatever this phrase means for us clearly and precisely, it does not mean that I have in my life an inherent righteousness before God. Can't mean that. And that, my beloved friends, was the precise point of the departure of the reformers from Roman Catholicism. Even today... If you would read in Roman Catholic literature, you would talk to a Roman Catholic who knows their own theology, they would say that their righteousness, their justness, their justification begins for them where? At baptism. The first of seven sacraments. It begins at baptism. And for them, that's of course infant baptism. And so, the very act of God in justifying the sinner begins for them as a process, not a point, at the beginning of their infant baptism. And through their life, through the rest of those seven sacraments, what they are doing is attempting, with God's grace and with their works, to become right with God. That is not what Paul is teaching here. It cannot be. 
That is the difference between an inherent righteousness and infused righteousness and something that is alien to the sinner. That's why Martin Luther himself continued to do penance, to try to walk upstairs, to try to flagellate himself, to try to do anything he could to to harm his body if his body was the problem, to deal with his mind if his mind was a problem, to deal with the whole person of his life if all of it was a problem. He was trying to work his way to be justified by God. And that's why he hated that phrase, the righteousness of God. Because every time he attempted to do a good work for God, he realized that in his heart and in his mind, his sinfulness was ever before him. And he knew and realized that he could not be right with God. He could not merit anything with God by his own works. Even if God were to infuse into his life more grace, he could not ever in reality cooperate with God enough so that one day he would be right with God by some effort of his and the grace of God. It could not happen. And that's why he was so incredibly confused and hurt and beaten down and angry and upset And when he came to this phrase, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, all he could see in that was God's justice, God's retributive justice. God's condemning me. God's showing me every day of my life that it's not good enough, that I can't do enough good works. So whatever this phrase means, the righteousness of God, it is not something that someone possesses already in his life. It's an alien righteousness. That's what the reformers used as a term. An alien righteousness. That means it's a righteousness that comes from outside of me. It's not something that happens in me. If I ever hope to be right with God, to go to heaven, to enjoy His blessing, whatever righteousness I have has come to me, not something that I cooperate with God in achieving. And that was the spark that was the light. That was the, that was the paradise that Luther discovered. That it's not in me. It's not in me. It's all of God. It's all of grace. That was the argument of the, of the Reformation. Do I have an inherent or an infused righteousness which when God gives me grace pushes me onward in order to ultimately become right with God? You ask a Roman Catholic Even at the end of one's life, are you right with God? Are you justified? The answer inevitably will come, I hope so. I hope so. I've done good works in my life and I hope that by my works and by God's grace, He's pushing me onward in order to become right with Him. So ultimately I can receive that declaration. Reformers said no. No, I don't have an inherent or an infused righteousness. I have a righteousness which comes from outside of me. An imputed or an alien righteousness that God grants me as a gift through faith in order to be declared right with God. And you can have that at the moment God declares you righteous. You can have an assurance of your salvation the very moment that God declares you righteous in this life. You don't have to wait till the end. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Lance has taken us on a theological journey today, and we've been taught a bit of church history as well. 
What does it do for us when we learn that God's very righteousness has come to us as a free gift? Have you reached out and accepted that gift? If you'd like to learn more about how to experience eternal life and joy in Jesus Christ, visit our website, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, click Broadcast, and there you'll find an archive of all of Pastor Lance's messages on the hope and the new life in Jesus Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Lance Quinn, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. And if you live nearby and you don't have a local church that you call home, we invite you to come worship with us 10.30 a.m. each Sunday. We're located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as Pastor Lance continues with part four of The Revealed Righteousness of God. For Timeless Truth Today, I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.